And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast this fine Saturday morning. Very cold, beautiful uh, full moon out there and uh, a very low-flying aeroplane, the things you get to see when you're uh, bicycling along in the dark. Just to get here to Solidarity Breakfast for my listeners out there who uh, are listening on the day it's made, but uh, you can also follow up on a podcast. Today we're going to follow up uh, friends of uh, Mount Sterling's uh, call that uh, they were worried about uh, potential big forests encroachment on some of the uh, forests around Mount Sterling. Uh, we get to sp- uh, speak to uh, Matt Rutchell from the Victorian National Parks Association who joins hands with uh, the Friends of Mount Sterling with the uh, Victorian Forest Alliance. They, uh, he had to, uh, he get, gives us an update on what's going on. You will be aware that the... Uh, Government has, uh, Victorian government has said that the uh, old growth logging in Victoria will cease on January the 1st. But actually, there's a few caveats. So uh, it was quite interesting to talk to Matt about what those caveats are. We're going to move on to a one woman show that uh, is uh, wowing the uh, audiences, uh, Diva. Bernadette Robinson's fantastic show that profiles uh, 10 divas. Uh, She is just a remarkable uh, performer and it's on at the Fairfax Fairfax Studios at at the Art Centre. She had a little word with us about her uh, fantastic uh, show. We move on to have a chat with uh, a couple of uh, members of Pony Cam, which is an experimental theatre company which is involved in a much bigger event called All of This Could Be Yours. It's a major... uh, event for uh, Darabin Arts. It's at uh, Darabin Arts Centre and it's uh, going to be two shows uh, on Tuesday the 5th of September, 1 and 6pm. It's part of the Fuse Festival and it involves a huge amount of the community. It's a fantastic uh, sounding affair and they're going to come in and have a chat with us, a couple of them. about it, I'm actually quite eager to find out more about this. Hugo Williams and Claire Bird are going to come in and talk to us about it. This is the week that was, and uh, we're going to follow that up with uh, a word from Dr Liz Bolton, who was speaking at an event called uh, By Mothers for Climate Justice outside the Victorian uh, Gallery on the 19th of August. It was fascinating. Uh, She gives an action plan of what... uh, it would really look like if we were taking climate action seriously. 
And uh, if we've got enough time, we'll have a few words from a couple of the people who were at the major rally at the Melbourne University campus before they started their week-long day, uh, week of action to uh, get uh, Duncan, the uh, uh, man hiding in the building above them, Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Vice-Chancellor probably was lying back in his mansion, the incredibly expensive mansion that is owned by Melbourne University down the road near uh, Royal Park. But uh, that didn't deter them. They, uh, You've been hearing over the week on uh, uh, 3CR Breakfast uh, voices from that strike, uh, and they're not going to stop. So uh, we'll, we'll hear a few voices as well. Uh, you're with Annie on uh, 3CR's Solidarity Breakfast. And before we move on, some important announcements. Gas is a toxic fossil fuel, yet gas exploration by sonic explosion is planned for the Otway Basin. Seismic blasting kills plankton and deafens whales, disrupting their migration. This blasting is opposed by coastal communities from Geelong to Apollo Bay and Warrnambool who strive to protect the ocean ecosystems. Bring Whale Song into Nam City, Friday the 15th of September at Queen's Bridge near Flinders Street at 4.30pm and onto the State Library for 5.30pm. Rally for Whale Song Not Gas is hosted by Extinction Rebellion, a 3CR supporter. If you're uh, interested, uh, Tipping Point Film Festival is also uh, a thing that you might be interested in in terms of environmental uh, concern. It's been put together by uh, Australian Documentary um, and the TEDx Sydney, and it's online. It's um, going to be... It's a whole series of different... um, uh, documentaries on the pertinent issue of environment and um, it's uh, also going to be hosting uh, Q&As throughout the event. You need to go to their on, uh, their on, uh, uh, to find out, you can to go online and register. It goes from the 1st of September, so it's already started and it goes to the 11th of September and it's hosted by uh, Documentary Australia's website. So you can go to Documentary Australia's website and you can uh, look at um, uh, what's going on. The online uh, Q&A is going to be hosted by Ted X Sydney and it's going to showcase uh, Tim Flannery's documentary Climate Changes in Sydney um, in cinemas September the 17th. Uh, so uh, there's a, a lot of interesting films and we've actually talked about them on Showreel, some of them. Uh, some of the films include uh, Regenerating Australia, Undermining Tales from the Kimberley, Carbon, the Unauthorised Biography, Delicado, which was a really interesting film, Youth on Strike and Black Cockatoo Crisis. So you can just go on board and it's called Tipping Point Film Festival going online 1 to the 11th of September. Uh, Anyway, on the same issue of environment, uh, I spoke to Matt Crucial, who is from the Victorian National Park Association, about the uh, concerns that were being expressed about uh, perhaps Vic Forest uh, nibbling away at the... um, taking opportunities before the ban on old old forest 
logging in uh, Victoria January the 1st. But as uh, the conversation with Matt continued, we found out a little bit more about what are the caveats on that particular promise. So we're talking about Mount Sterling and the threat to uh, uh, by logging. Um, uh, yeah. people, people would generally uh, believe that uh, the old growth forest in Victoria, as it is left, uh, is protected because there's going to be logging banned by January the 1st to 2024. Uh, can you explain what's really going on? Well, I suppose they're still concerned. So logging operations are still allowed, though there's some constraints due to court orders. Um, we have continued with partners to do uh, citizen science on logging coops across the state and we are concerned that there still will be some logging uh, potentially and one site we've been particularly concerned about is Mount Sterling or it's the piece of land between the Mount Sterling Alpine Resort and the Alpine National Park. It's still state forest um, and there are a number of coops up there uh, or logging areas uh, that were scheduled and we'd had word that Big Forests had approached the Alpine Resort to use their roads. And so we're concerned that that area uh, may be targeted in a sort of last-ditch effort uh, to undertake logging. Um, we'd found five uh, threatened plants that are listed under state environment laws. And so I've highlighted that and called for Big Forests not to let it happen. Uh, we'll talk about those endangered uh, species. Uh, it's always great to hear the names of them, things that you don't know anything about. Lilac, bitter cress, fringe riced flower, hairy eyebright, ovens everlasting and royal grevillea. What fabulous names. Indeed, and it's often uh, the, the animals that get a lot of attention, but the plants are just as important. And in these places, which are quite high and quite unique, Patches of bush. Uh, there's been a long-standing campaign to try and get uh, that piece of state forest between the Alpine Resort and the Alpine National Park established as a either part of the park to ensure that it's protected and there's a clear sort of biolink between the Alpine National Park and the Alpine Resort. And, and it's quite unusual forest in lots of ways. It's mixes of alpine ash and mountain gum and snow gum, perfectly unsuitable for logging. Uh, since this issue has been raised, though, Big Forest says they have no intention of logging that area, which is good news, um, but we're just uh, vigilant uh, that there's no sort of last-ditch effort uh, before the phase-out happens. And I suppose they're keen to see the government actually make a decision on the future of Big Forest, which they haven't done yet. Yeah, right. And uh, people are very dubious about uh, Big Forest because... Constantly, it has in the past uh, failed to do any proper surveying and uh, purely with the idea of uh, logging as much as it can. Well, that's right. There's been a very sort of vexed track record with Vic Forest. There's been a number of community court cases. Um, there's been huge numbers of you know reports on impacts on threatened species. Um, and I think while the, the decision to end native forest logging is very welcome, there's still a few unknown details in terms of what the transition looks like. One of them is, what's the future of big forests? We also know that not all of the logging is necessarily ending by the 1st of January. Um, there's still 
logging in the west of the state, which is done under a different type of legal arrangement, will be open until at least June 2024. And so we're concerned about that. I think uh, the, probably the, the ball's in the government's court to make a, a decision about the future of Big Forest. Um, it's an institution that's lost sort of social licence and we need to move on. Can you tell me a little bit about the areas in the west of the state which are under threat? So there's a there's a couple of two different uh, legal sort of arrangements for logging in Victoria. One uh, involves a thing called an allocation order, which is what the big industrial areas are in the east of the state, and that's managed uh, through timber release plans. And um, the government committed to the phase out by the first of January uh, next year. Um, the west of the state and very small parts of the east is managed under the old Forest Act through um, forest, what they call forest produce licences and there's a sort of plan called the Timber Utilisation Plan. So it's a different system, sort of authorised under a different legislative framework. And in the west of the state, which is very different to the east, so you're talking about the Wombat Forest, Mount Cole, right out to the sort of back of the Otways and uh, right out up to the sort of little desert, it is in a regional forest agreement area, but it's managed through this timber utilisation plan. It's quite a large area. Uh, it's about 65,000 hectares of uh, areas actually on the logging schedule. And that, that's of a concern because these areas are, are very fragmented. Um, they've got high numbers of threatened species and you know some of the most cleared landscapes in the state. And so the bits of forest that are left are critically important. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, as you say, they've become scrappy, but in the past, they were large swathes of uh, forests, weren't they? Indeed. And so you've got this sort of patchwork of bush out there in, you know, very cleared farming landscapes. And so they're incredibly important. They're different sorts of bush too, you know, drier forests as well as patches of wet forests and things like that. And the methods used under community forestry, they call it, um, it's a bit of a euphemism, uh, range from sort of firewood-related stuff, commercial firewood, right through to clear fell logging at places like Mount Cole, uh, which is also proposed to be a national park. So we don't want to see, you know, the future potential forests. They're worth a lot more standing than they are um, chopped down, um, particularly in those cases around the Wombat and Mount Cole where the government has promised for them to be a national park um, but said that they could be logged once and we don't want to see that logging happen now that native forest logging is ending. Hey, Mount Cole, you mentioned Mount Cole because uh, of course Mount Cole is a really important uh, site in uh, Indigenous history. Indeed and uh, Mount Cole, Mount Buangor, um, there is a proposal for an expansion of the Mount Buangor State Park um, uh, but it also has quite a large number of logging coops in it um, and Mount Cole uh, they do use a form of clear fell logging there, which is very destructive. And it's an important place ecologically as well because it it's quite high and it comes out of a, uh, a sort of a flat plain. And, you know, we know with climate change, a lot of species will need to sort of modify their capacity to deal with changing temperatures. And one way to do that is sort of moving up uh, mountains. And so those mountains, you know, right out to the Grampians are really... Uh, incredibly important for the future. Yeah, you, you talk about the forests around Mount Sturley providing a key link to Alpine National Park 
and the Mount Sterling Alpine Resort. You're really getting at the uh, integrated nature of the environment, aren't you? Indeed, and we note from, you know, there's some historical things about where boundaries are put. Um, The Alpine Resort, Mount Sterling, of course, is, you know, much love for both cross-country skiers, but it's also ecologically very important. It's reasonably high. The Alpine National Park, of course, is one of the... Um, jewels in the crown of our national parks estate. The bit in between, and sort of historically when they designed the Alpine National Park, it was conveniently that uh, often the boundary started at the sort of snow line um, and the commercial forests were left out. Um, So it's the bit uh, that sort of runs from the uh, sort of higher level through a very deep valley, which has got very interesting streams and waterfalls and quite a few unique species in there as well, like Galaxias, the endangered fish um, is the area that we're particularly concerned about um, and it will provide a, a, a classic important link between Mount Sterling and the Alpine National Park. Can you give me any understanding of uh, this business about the lawyers from the Environmental Justice Australia filing a ACCC complaint on behalf of the VFA asking for an investigation into Vic Forest's misleading sustainability claims? Why is that important? Um, I think that one's important because, uh, you know, there's a lot of claims about forestry being, you know, it regrows, it regenerates. We saw all those sorts of claims that have been made repeatedly over the years. But we know from previous sort of investigations by community uh, organisations that things like regeneration don't necessarily happen. So 30% of the areas that have been logged uh, previously are still failing to regenerate. So there's uh, questions about that. The lawyers have provided a detailed uh, application testing that and seeking to see how it fits with consumer law. So that's the case. Um, I'm not sure where it's at at the minute. Yeah, well, it's interesting because it sort of leads one to think that uh, if that was provable, then all the resources of Big Forest should be actually put into uh, remedial um, work. Yeah, well, I suppose it's an interesting one. Vic Forest is a state-owned enterprise, so it's, a, it's got its own special status under uh, Victorian legislation. So it's supposed to be a business. Um, uh, while it's been heavily state-subsidised um, to top up, it's and it hasn't really provided any income to the state. Um, with the end of native forest logging, um, it's probably likely that the turnover uh, the, or the proceeds that came from logging will disappear. Well, that would be the theory, um, but certainly the subsidy um, should be available. And look, forests need management, but they don't necessarily need uh, forestry. So there is going to be a need for significant resources to be um provided to ensure that our forests are properly managed for a whole lot of values, ecological, cultural, climate, uh, water, um, recreation. Now, you're part of the Victorian National Park Association, and as you said, you, you're working with allies. You're going to, uh, this is a watching brief for you, isn't it, to ensure that big forest doesn't cause any more vandalism within our forests? Indeed, and um, so I think everybody's very vigilant to see where um, they're watching where the logging schedules are and uh, where activity is happening. We hope that the wind-down is happening as planned. 
but we don't want him to see any sort of additional damage that can be avoided. So lots of groups are out there doing, still doing citizen science and still, you know, keeping an eye, very close eye on what's going on. It's interesting, you know, the citizen science because the laws that were passed um, uh, falsely uh, under these uh, workplace safety arrangements to uh, limit the amount of people who are in coops, um, how important and how that curtails citizen scientists' work. Uh, Have you seen any uh, negative outcomes of that uh, implementation at all? Yeah, I think people are more cautious. Uh, it's a timing question about sort of when uh, what they call safety zones are put in place, which is sort of the legal instrument. So, um, you know, that has made uh, some groups more hesitant in terms of when they can do surveys and so on. Um, but the survey effort's still continuing. Yeah, because it's incredibly important, isn't it? Well, it is, because um, uh, the... You know, the, the community groups using citizen science has been a really powerful tool, one, to highlight to the community the importance of the different types of species that we find, ranging from, you know, things with big bushy brown eyes and tails like greater gliders through to uh, endangered plants. And um, we have threatened species laws, both federally and at a state level, but unfortunately, particularly at a state level, they're not greatly implemented um, unless they're sort of specifically forestry-related or something. And there's a sort of disconnect between the 2,000-odd species that are listed on uh, our threatened species laws and what's protected from forestry. So highlighting and finding these plants and animals is critically important, and the community's shown a great passion for that. And that was Matt Ruschel from the Victorian National Park Association. We were talking about um, a th- potential threat to uh, areas around Mount Stirling, but we, it went uh, to uh, give us a clear understanding of uh, what are the caveats in the uh, uh, stopping of uh, logging in native logging in Victoria, which is scheduled for January the 1st, 2024. Let's hear from the... Uh, Climate Choir, who were at the Mothers for Climate Justice on a demonstration outside the Victorian Art Gallery. We honour the land that we're living on. You respond. The land that we're living on. We honour the country and the old ones. We honour the country and the old ones. We sing up country and we sing it up strong. We sing up country and we sing it up strong. For we are all connected as one. We are all connected as one. We honour the ones who have gone before. We honour the ones who have gone before. We honour the wisdom of the ancient law. We honour the wisdom of the ancient law. We sing up country and we sing it up strong. We sing up country and we sing it up strong. For we are all connected as one. We are all connected as one. We honour the earth and the sea and the sun. We honour the earth and the sea and the sun. We honour the living and the life to come. 
We honor the living and the life to come. We sing up country and we sing it up strong. We sing up country and we sing it up strong. For we are all connected as one. We are all connected as one. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we caught up with Bernadette Robinson who has got this fantastic one-woman show called Divas. It's directed by Simon Phillips. It's on at the uh, Art Centre right at this moment and it runs till the 10th of September. This is what she had to say. Congratulations on your show. It's quite mind-blowing, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, to begin with, I'll have to say, I, I, I'm thinking... You you were singing for two hours non-stop. I know. What about the four shows I've just done? Two yesterday and two on Saturday. So four hours. Eight hours of singing over the weekend. That's unreal. <laughs> I know. It's a big thing. Yeah, it is a big thing. Well, the thing, the thing is that people don't realise because they haven't gone to the show yet, but I'm sure they will buy a ticket to Divas. Um, you go into the lives of uh, musical lives of uh, ten divas, and before mm-hmm. we get on to the actual people, um, mm. they, what I was really struck with was how different they all are. There's so they're like there's ten mm. of these fantastic female singers, and Mm-mm. they're very famous, but they're very different. That's exactly what we're after. We wanted them to be as diverse as we possibly could. So each style is just so different from the last one, and yeah, so that was. Exactly what struck you was exactly our intention. You know, Shirley Bassey, Barbara Streisand, in a sense, have a similar range, I'll say. You know, like they're brassy, blonde. Uh, Not the same? No, tell me. Tell me more. I I, I produce my voice very differently for both of those women, but I guess they can be kind of seen as belters, but Streisand, I would say, is... A uh, more pure quality and a lighter tone to her voice than Bassy, who's absolute got a big belty, fruity kind of voice. <laughs> it's just the way I, I, I guess they kind of overlap a little bit, but not really in their vocal quality. Well, you, I don't te- think. you tell me, because you, you, you're the one, you're the expert. You tell me about <laughs> the process for you, because you're basically impersonating <laughs> them. Through their voice, I'm trying to create their quality. I suppose in person, it sort of sounds a bit lightweight, but I do try to actually create from my own colours and voice what they have something you know in them that I can find and and re revisit. I suppose I recreate the quality, but I don't know if it's well. If I guess I sound a bit like them, but I also try to get the colours that they have and the and the um, obviously the range and intention behind what they're singing, yeah. Yeah, right. But so I, it's all I, like I've got this. I have a voice that's obviously I have a huge range, but a lot of different colours. And I just have listened pretty much all my life to singers as a child. I mean, I always loved listening to female vocalists, and so it's become sort of almost in. in in part of me, really, um, there's uh, and and I just have worked and taken it further and further, and that's partly why this is the sort of 
um, peak of, of my singing career. Also, the singers I've chosen, a lot of them have had struggles or, 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 or some kind of identity crisis about performing or singing because I think that myself as a singer and performer, I see my voice as very much a part of me. And if something happened to that, then I would feel like that's part of me gone. And I think that's what we tried to bring to life in this story with um, divas. What it, the, the voice is so much a part of them. It's so I think that's part of it, you know, what we're trying to say in the, in the show. Because, I mean, the thing is that um, you don't change your costume. You do change your no, body no. movements a bit. But, um, <laughs> but that's not the point. No, no, it? I change it. Yeah, no, no, it's just, it is just trying to evoke the character and the speaking because all of the, all of the women in the show also speak as themselves. So that was a whole new thing for me to sort of find their actual spoken voices. And, and we take excerpts from all real interviews of them and create that story. So we mould it to suit what we want to do in the narrative, but it is actually them, their words that we use. I thought that was a very tasty element to the story because uh, each of these people, Shirley Bassey, it's Barbara Stuyvesant, Amy Winehouse, my particular favourite, Dolly Parton, <laughs> Judy Garland, Piaf, mm -hmm. Karen Carpenter and... Miley Cyrus. Dolly Parton does that transition where she says God, godmother to goddaughter about... Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. She's godmother to Miley. And then Wrecking Ball, of course, is a huge hit Shit, for, from, Miley for Miley Cyrus. I know nothing and, about uh, Miley Flowers. Cyrus. Yeah, I know I nothing you. about no. her. Nothing at all, which is fascinating. <laughs> well, now you do. Now I do. Show. Yeah, yeah, now I do. Um, Did you say Kate Bush? I can't remember. Oh, yeah, Kate, oh, and Kate Bush. Yeah, Kate Bush. Mm. Um, and the the thing that was really interesting was um, all of these people have had tangles with the mainstream media who have uh, taken liberties with their personas as, as female performers, haven't they? For example, with, uh, well, Miley Cyrus, um, you know, mm. like the, the, uh, Judy Garland, um, you know, they've all oh, got yes. different portray stories. portray them in a negative way. Yeah, they yes, portray them yes, in negative yes. ways. Yeah. That's as true. It's separate from them as people. And so you sort of take it back. You, you, you uh, give them uh, their uh, agency again, it seems to me. Yes, yes, yeah, try to show... This is what they've been through, and you know, as she said, the most, the only harmful thing she ever did was to sing over the rainbow. So, <laughs> you know, she's a she's a performer. So you don't have to this overwhelming negativity and accusing her of these things. It just seems so unfair and ridiculous when all they're trying to do is give joy to people. I know also people like uh, Karen Carpenter who had such a tragic oh. end. Dreadful anorexia, yeah, and that's that's well, yeah, we'll bring that to force. So, a lot of them have things like, well, of course, Amy, yeah, poor old uh, Amy Whitehouse, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, some of them, but not all of them. I mean, like Dolly, so she, <laughs> that has, yeah. she's so successful and she decided to be, and then Barbara Streisand, too, though, she was had terrible stage fright and never didn't perform for many, many years. So, a lot of them have something, you know, to do with their voice or their singing or their stage presence where things were not always rosy. But they're great songs, yeah. Yeah, they're great songs. What I realised was the piaf is what what music, what beautiful music. 
Oh yeah, such wonderful songs. Yeah, that's the see the, the that's the beauty for me. It might be a long show for me, but it's great fun because I get to sing all these songs and the wonderful and Maria Callas. So I was going to say opera. I completely forgot Maria Callas, <laughs> but I have to say when you started to sing, everybody in the in the audience just almost we we almost painted. It was <laughs> so impressive. <laughs> Yeah, that was great. I love doing that, bring her out of the people just thinking, wow, who else is she going to do? And then I just come straight out with that operatic cadenza and that's a really exciting moment in the show because I trained as an opera singer here at the Victorian College of the Arts. So I, I really wanted to bring that extra string to my bow into the show. So that's kind of, yeah. So we've got, and then going straight into Amy Winehouse from the classical opera singer is really fun too because people just think, what the hell? <laughs> How did you choose which person to go to next? We spent ages on that. I think partly because we wanted to be as diverse as like, oh my God, and and keep them separate a bit from each other. Like Amy and Miley Cyrus are sort of the only contemporary ones and and so we didn't want them anywhere near each other and we wanted to just bring the, the most um, extraordinary uh, diversity. So that's why some to have her and then to have Amy and then to have Amy going into Judy Garland with Summer of the Rainbow was really powerful too, I think. I do too. Sort of, yeah, it, it's a great way to finish with Judy, I think, because it's sort of... We've come so far, but to think there's no business like show business after all that is is quite moving, I think. Well, you don't do any missteps within the entire show. It's absolutely captivating, actually, I'll have to say. And <laughs> and a marathon. I mean, I, 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 no, didn't, no. I didn't think about it at the time until it was finished. I, I actually thought to myself, God, you've been singing for two hours. <laughs> I know. Think about those double show days. <laughs> oh, I did. Um, tell me, when you say we thought about it, is that a royal we yes. or were you working with someone? <laughs> I was working with Simon Phillips, the director, who's done so much. I actually met him way back when he was artistic director of Melbourne Theatre Company. But he's gone on to do um, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Around the World, Love Never Dies, a lot of international success there with his own work. And he's done so much, really. He's a huge star. I originally had another show that I'd done, which is sort of the the basis for building on. It was called The Show Goes On, and that was a show that was a little bit had the germ of the idea, but it wasn't until I got Simon on board and he helped co-write the piece and work out which songs and how it should come in, and he directed the whole thing. So it's just a it's just like so good now that it's. He's been the one that's really helped make this happen. Your backing band's fantastic too. Yes, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> I love them. They're fantastic. Yeah. Musical director is Mark Jones and he's put so much work into this, really creating um, the sounds for each singer. They're all good singers, the musicians, so they've got these great harmonies and backing vocals for so many of the singers I'm portraying. So, yeah, they are. They're marvellous. I really, really rely on them to create that sound. The other thing before we finish, I suppose, is um, yeah. why did you want to do this? Well, I mean, why these people? <laughs> why them in particular? Oh, not necessarily these people, but 
um, that's a facility I have, and I just thought I've in, done shows before or plays really that written for me by Joanna Murray Smith. I did um, songs for nobodies, which went to the West End, and I was nominated there for an Olivia Award with that. But it was a play with five singers, and the singers only got to sing, you know, eight or nine songs within the whole play because it was mainly spoken, five monologues. Um, and I just, people loved it, but they also said it'd be great to hear more singing. So they got more singing in this show, <laughs> a whole lot more. And I had never done 10. Um, we didn't want to do any more than that because it's just, it would be too short. You know, the little excerpts, little cameos would be a bit too short if we made it longer. Um, so we just decided that 10 would be a good number. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. Um what happens with it now? I mean, it's going to be on at the Art Centre to September the 10th. Uh, then it's going to Auckland to do a season um, in October for a couple of weeks. And then we'll see. We're hoping to take it to the Adelaide Cabaret Festival next year and see if it'll be picked up for other places. Yeah. It's quite portable. It's really just me. <laughs> Not a very expensive set and like a couple of stools and a microphone. So... I think um, we're looking to see if we can get a bit more of future out of it after Auckland too. I can't, I'm not surprised. What a fantastic mm. show. Thank you. Thanks for talking to me. My pleasure. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got another creative uh, crew in the studio and they're live, Pony Cam. And uh, we've got Hugo. G'day, Hugo. G'day. And we've got Claire. G'day, Claire. Hello. Now, you guys are in here because I want to find out about this amazing event called All of This Could Be Yours. Tell us about how did Pony Cam get involved in making this extraordinary event, which is going to happen on Tuesday, the 5th of September, 1 o'clock and 6 p.m. as part of Fuse Festival. How did this happen, Claire? Uh, we probably started brewing a while ago, a couple of years ago, we started a project um, where we set out to collaborate with a group of uh, folk over the age of 55. So we had um, six people in our cast making that show uh, between sort of 55 and I think 75 was our oldest. Um, and we devised a new work with them and then we put it on a couple of times and then we started doing some workshops around the place with the same kind of age group and then we found ourselves, yeah, I guess, in another show process with another amazing group of people but this time feels like we're 
expanding. We've got a cast of 25. I was going to say thousands. Yeah, oh, it feels like thousands when we put them on a stage. But, yeah, so we kind of work um, in a very collaborative um, sense as a company and then when we take on um, other kind of outside collaborators, often a lot of non-performers, and we just... Yeah, I guess that's how we've kind of found ourselves in this kind of hot pot. We've got a beautiful theatre space, which is is wild and a wonderful <clears throat> big cast. Yeah. yeah. So, Hugo, what what are the aims? What are the aims for this production? What are the aims? That's yeah, a yeah. lovely question. <laughs> I wasn't imagining I'd get that so, so quickly. Um, what are the aims? I think um, the aims are twofold for us. Um, this work of this scale on in this theatre, with the kind of support that we've received from Darabin, um, doesn't really happen very much. It's no. quite um, no. I looked at the thing. And I thought, my God, this is. It's like um, Mary Poppins's bag. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. One hundred percent. Yeah, and it feels like we're playing at the scale of almost opera, but. Um, something very significantly community and um, very something unpretentious about about the way that it's performed, which is not that opera is pretentious, but it has that kind of um, aesthetic of quite you know large and massive, yet this feels very intimate at times. Um, so I suppose uh, one of our aims in, in, in that is just to do the thing, show that it can be done, and, and internally... We make, as a, as, a, as a team in PonyCam, we make what we would call um, experimental contemporary performance. And, and for us, that doesn't mean that we're just working in these kind of like no-meaning abstract states. We're actually working with just ways or processes that are just very different from the other ways that most people put on theatre shows. And for us, working with community at a scale, showing their stories in a way that's not just them standing up and speaking, but actually quite um, um, uh, contemporary and, and, and has these kind of like, these kind of post-dramatic performance things in them, um, is, is us mixing the, is mixing the pot or mixing the Mary Poppins bag, so to speak. But it's also unlocking because the people, I mean, I interview people and people when I began doing community radio, what I realised and the thing that re- I really liked was people actually want to tell their story. Yeah, hundred percent. They want to be listened to. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So and they want to seem they they I think they want to be pushed into. Well, my experience has been that they want to be pushed into telling stories that are not just the ones they tell everyone, but actually the ones that are like slightly under that and then it also feels like in our experience and we're finding this in this process at the moment we were up to rehearsing quite late last night so we've kind of got these stories in us is um they really want a like a form or a container that they can express in a, in a big way in a large way and really display the emotions that they've felt with those stories at, at the way that only theater can support the like it has that kind of scale cooked in yeah yeah it's a bit like um you know uh, the thing that's dif- difficult is you like you take photographs, but they never, unless you're a skilled photographer, they never translate the emotion that you saw when you saw that p- image in mm. your own head. Mm. But you are actually allowing people to express that emotion as they felt it in a public way. That that's actually really big. That's really well articulated. Yeah, yeah, I like that. 
Yeah, cool. So yeah. our first aim is just to do it and uh, and do it well. Um, make something high quality that audiences walk away from going, hey, I feel like I was necessary in that in what they were doing. I felt like I was welcomed and I felt like I had a great time. Yeah. Re- right. Really simply, that's that's one of the big aims. And then the second aim for us is just this developing this process. Um, for us, it's not just one show. It's an ongoing um, process of working with community. Um, and that's just a big part of what we do. So, so the concept of... Um, the difficult it's actually a really good uh, uh, media release that was put out by Darabin. It, it, um, through a large mass of bodies um, grappling with the difficulties of reflecting community on stage. So it's an incredibly radical thing to actually put the community in a public space. Is that right, Claire? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it feels. Yeah, it feels like we're always walking kind of an interesting line between uh, the the community on stage, um, performing, not performing, um, especially maybe in in this context where we've sort of, we've done a lot of shows in sort of hall spaces or more unexpected environments like abandoned shopfronts or car parks and things like that. And you can really inhabit that space fully as as coming at it from a, a quite um, a theatrical mindset. You can almost create what you want it to be. Um, and working in a, a big theatre uh, is kind of incredible because it comes with so much loaded... Uh, baggage for for us for the audience for the the ensemble um and we feel like it's it's quite radical to put yeah maybe people who are non-performers I'd say that's not all of the cast some of the cast has a bit of a, a performance background or an artistic background as well um and find out how how we navigate theatrical language and how we navigate um community voices and individuals and ensemble mass all together in this kind of hot pot at the same time. So, yeah, it's quite it's quite a wonderful um, experience and, and seeing it and watching it unfurl in a really short time frame is, yeah. Well, there's five of you in your team. Mm. Um, what... what uh, uh, it, it's that thing about uh, everything that goes on in the media is um, contrived. Uh, n- nothing is natural. Theatre is the same. When do you prune? How do you get agreement with your performers to prune? Well, in that in in that way, it's like it's it's impossible, right? Yeah, like that's yeah. that's the that's the. Who agrees? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just a meeting point between. It's a meeting point between a bunch of people and sort of half agreeing. Yeah, yeah, and um, then there's suspense and all the other types of things that uh, create a shape to a performance, right? Yeah, and 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 that maybe is what gives it its authenticity. Um, auth- authenticity, which is what people have said about our work before, um, is it feels very real. Um, I'm a, I'm amazed that you've done this. That's very sweet. Um, and I think a big thing about our performance style, so when we're working um, outside of these kind of larger collaborations, is, is we, we perform as ourselves. 
um, and you know, it's a version of obviously it's not it's not completely stripped back, but it's a version of ourselves, and, and we come and we talk to an audience quite directly, and we share stories and memories, um, and then and then when we do do performance things or when we do um, when we move into more theatrical moments, the audience it goes with us because they're like, well, they're just they're just a bunch of people who have just been talking to me, yeah, and now they're doing this. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Whereas, yeah. and I feel like when we, when some shows start like that, or sometimes in the previous, when we start like that, people are like, all right, who are these people? And why, why should I care that they're pretending that they don't see me? Yeah, and they're yeah, five yeah. meters away from me. And so you're doing this massaging of the social contract and the social interactions. It's a fantastic uh, interrogation for the audience, right? That's really well said. Yeah, 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 that's really well said. And I think what Claire was saying previously to add on was that that, that the theatre space, the big theatre space, um, um, comes with a lot of things. The moment you walk in there, uh, it, it tells you how to sit, it tells you how to be, it tells you how to um, what to order before you enter, it tells you that you need to perhaps park or there's like a ritual to coming and then the the state the the the, the curtains open and then you receive images and meaning. And right? light and, and light. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I think our show will have some of those elements in it, but from the moment you walk in the building, we want to disrupt that in a way that makes you feel more welcomed and makes you feel like you're more a part of it. Um, so we have lots of plans to do that, but but that's a big part of this show. Oh, it's just so fantastic. It's um, going to be, it's, uh, it's only happening twice. Yes. It's only happening a- and twice. And each time will not be the same. Each time will not be the same. Yeah, that's, yep. that's as best put as I can put it. Yeah. Are you going to film it? We will be. Yeah. Oh, good, because it's just too good to miss. Um, so Tuesday, the fifth of September, one p.m. and six p.m. And it's at Darabin Art Centre. It is. Yeah. 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 And tickets are all. If you type all of this, could be yours online um, with Darabin or Pony Cam in any of that stuff. You'll you'll get the you'll get the ticketing link. Uh, Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for chatting. Diamonds are forever They are all I need to please me They can stimulate and tease me They won't leave in the night I've no fear that they might desert me I don't need love For what good would love do me? Oh, what's the matter with me? 
I've always longed for adventure To do the things I've never dared Now here I'm facing adventure Then why am I so scared? Don't tell me not to fly I've simply got to If someone takes a spell It's me and not you Who told you you're allowed to rain on my Someday I wish upon a star And wake up where the clouds are far behind me Where troubles melt like lemon drops Away above the chimney tops That's where you Il est bien pour ma fille, ni le mal, tout ça m'est bien égal. Non, rien de rien, non, je ne regrette rien, car ma vie, car mes joies, aujourd'hui, ça. Solidarity Briggy team listener, when we finally have a date for those who don't want True Blavosi to be divided by race to vote no to recognising the terra nullius non-land non-people as a race. The two terra nullius non-land non-people leading the no campaign telling us that recognising them would divide us on race because Jacinta Warren like there's no history of racial divide, war, slaughter in Trublawazi these past 235 years. The Lord Rupert of Wapping, usual suspect, columnist bolt through the head and other Lord Rupert acolytes agree. Interesting how they use race to argue they're not racists. We can understand terra nullius non-land non-people who argue the voice proposal is inadequate, doesn't go far enough, but that's a different story. We could have had a bipartisan support if only the socialists had given poor, caring, business-class supremo and would-be big supremo constable Peter Duffer the detail he so desired, sought with such sincerity. Detail, detail, detail. No thought of obfuscation. And now poor Peter's uncovered yet another barrier to a fair vote. The voting system itself. It's loaded against his side. Obviously, those who developed the voting system a hundred and whatever years ago foresaw this referendum and created a system designed to thwart Pete, add to the political confusion which Pete uncovered. If you don't know, vote no. Like you know, he sloganises. Not much of an argument, because in Pete's case, don't know. I was just about everything. He probably knows his own name, probably. 
because Pete certainly lacks a fair bit, well, to be fair, heaps, in the intellect department, which probably explains why he says no to everything, because if you don't know, say no, like you know, when in fact, of course, you, you don't know like. Like, Pete went out of his way to prove the point by accusing those opposing nuclear power as political dinosaurs putting the country on a path to lights out, like, like, you know, kind of half correct, because the nuclear power he so desires would certainly see us all go the way of the dinosaurs. Reported last week how the most evil of evil unions, construction and maritime, called for evil union representation on the Reserve Losses Bank Board, prompting caring business class shadow economic guru Angus Tailings to come up with a stunning fact of which we had absolutely no idea that the most evil of evil unions paid big economic guru Jim Chalmers capital and big supremo Anthony Albinguzzi salaries when we thought they were paid by the public purse. Uh, this, this will be a test for Jim Chalmers' capital and Anthony Albinguzzi's leadership. Will they bend to the pressure of their union paymasters or do the right thing and preserve the independence of our key economic institutions? You'll recall he shared his wisdom and concern for the delicate flower that is the economy. We shared his awareness that unlike ignorant single-minded workers, only caring employers from the filthy rich can bring independence to these matters. Think for both caring employers and their lazy avaricious workforces. Of course, former big supremo nuclear hawk himself appointed former ACTU secretary little Billy Kilton to the board as Gough Whitlam had previously appointed nuclear hawk when Nuke was ACTU president. But Angus and caring employers this time fear the socialists might appoint someone who is a threat to the caring employers and therefore all of us. Whereas Hawke's main contribution to the interests of the workers who he represented was to call for a wage freeze, kind of like what we've got now, but unofficially. Let the public purse pick up wage increases through trickling a few benefits to workers, workers subsidising their own tiny wage increases through the taxes they can't avoid, while their caring employers are subsidised for the wage increases they do avoid from the taxes they also avoid. Win-win. Oh yes, that nuclear hawk was a giant of the labour movement. Unfortunately, the unofficial wage freeze these past several years has not been freeze enough to prevent serious problems for caring employers like big true blue Aussie BHP, bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, offshoot, South 30 never too much profit, which joined a chorus of caring employers pointing out proposed caring business class relations laws would make life just impossible, crush productivity, and in South 30, uh, never too much profits case, exacerbates an already impossible situation with worker greed, with wages. As Supremo Graham Curse workers stressed, labour costs, that is wages, and all those crippling work practices are much more pronounced in True Blue Aussie than in other jurisdictions where we operate. Industrial relations reforms would set back productivity, that eternal barrier to the caring employer's desire to solve the problems of slow wage growth. Rising labour costs are the biggest headache in True Blue Aussie. It is cheaper to operate in the US of where we're developing a base metals project than in True Blue Aussie, and labour cost pressures are also less of an issue in South America and Southern Africa. 
and we all know how companies like South 30 never too much treat their workers and the environment in those places, showing in even greater magnitude the greed of true Blue Aussie workers. And given Graham's clear rapport and concern about working people, it's difficult to comprehend how workers at its Appen mine in New South Wales have been on strike for three weeks. Why would they be upset with Graham and the boardroom team who know lots more about the industry than they do? In great workers. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Caring employers would be better off without them. Graham and the board, get rid of this impediment to profits and head down to the mine and do the work yourselves. That'd show workers at evil unions they're unnecessary for the delicate flower of the economy to do its thing. They're only employed because caring employers see providing jobs as their raison d'etre through the sheer goodness of their big, generous hearts. Like the big, generous heart of our old mate industry profits group Supremo Innes will cost the workers, who warned us that if caring employers were forced to treat gig workers as, wait for it, as workers, we would lose thousands of jobs, presumably because they'd have to be paid and crucify their employers with those crippling work practices like time off, holidays for for God's sake, sick leave, superannuation, penalty rates, oh, it's endless. And we can but imagine how these threats must tug at Innes' warm, caring heart. Not sure where he dragged the thousands of workers from, but Innes knows what he's talking about, so we'll take his word for it. He did uh, say workers would be double-dipping, and caring employers said the legislation would set True Blue Aussie back decades and would hurt consumers. While the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations conceded the new rules would cost caring employers more, because obviously it would cost more if they had to pay their workers, or sorry, contractors, and top marks to the commercial telly news the other night, picking up the caring employers' concern for consumers, for all of us, well, except the workers involved, angling its story, delivered meals will cost us more under new legislation planned by the government. Uncaring delivery contractors, not workers, showing no concern for the very customers who keep them contracted. The telly news clearly thought these workers, or sorry, contractors, are already well enough off. And if, like so many other troop Aussies, they rent, then sure, they can enjoy the news this week that inflation had dropped a little bit, a smidge. Although it turned out there had been huge increases in a few areas, like rents and electricity. So renters turning on the lights or keeping themselves warm or cooking a meal must be over the moon at the lower inflation they're enjoying and can keep on enjoying before they land in the gutter. Trying to avoid landing in the gutter over Steve Banks asking to be, quote, carved out of mooted legislation to regulate artificial intelligence. As an aside, if AI meant an intelligence implant, Constable Duffer would be head of Q. Carved out because bank spokesperson and former socialist state supremo Anna Blight on workers explained the government must consider whether the legislation needs to apply to specific highly regulated sectors such as the banking sector. Poor highly regulated banks and we know just how much they're struggling. On which we pointed out the airline which used to be our airline was privatised by the socialists because they told us the public sector could not compete with the super-efficient private sector airlines. Yet, 
Since then, economics have obviously reversed 100% because every time the private airline, which used to be, faces competition, we're told it must be protected because the private airline, which used to be, can't compete with state-owned airlines, which have a huge advantage. Opposing the very competition the private sector tells us helps us all will help the private shareholders and top marks to the government for bending over backwards to ensure those shareholders reap fortunes while their customers cop it in the neck. Including the airline which used to be pocketing airfares for flights they cancelled ages ago. Learning from the banks and financial institutions which specialised in charging fees for no service. And by taking money for flights that don't exist, the airline the government said it couldn't afford could theoretically demand less corporate welfare, the trillions it extracts from the public purse, but only theoretical, because the primo Alan Joystick is always seen with his hand out. Incredibly, the poor airline which used to be is being charged for doing what business does best, charge for no service. Perhaps someone should remind the government, as it offers reason number 133 for why it banned competition to the airline which used to be, that we don't own it anymore, that we don't have to keep paying for it. And finally, as AMP for all members pissed off, Chief Economist Shane, I love to give advice, is regularly employed by the media to advise us as a financial expert. A couple of the super-efficient private super funds like AMP have been ordered by the regulator to tell their customers they'd be better off in a fund which actually made money for them, as the private rental funds failed the so-called performance test. What? Those funds run by evil unions and workers outperforming the brilliant private sector? How could that be, listener? Good morning. Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to 3CR when you're on it. Until now. The Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Yeah, back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we are now going to move on again to an event that happened, uh, I think it was uh, two Saturday, Saturdays ago. It was uh, outside the uh, Victorian uh, Art Gallery, the National Gallery of Victoria, a fun, funny name that one, uh, the uh, Mothers for Climate Justice have... Uh, been periodically uh, sitting up out the front of that uh, venue on a Saturday. Uh, it's a good place to be because it's uh, got lots of families, lots of people bustling around and uh, it was a, quite an extraordinary event actually because uh, uh, people would uh, come and talk to the people who were sitting there in a row and the uh, singers, the climate singers. Um, but they also had a speaker and the speaker was Dr Liz Bolton who gave us a quite an extraordinary understanding of what would be required if we actually took climate uh, change seriously. Um, and uh, this is what she said. I'd like to call upon Dr Liz Bolton to come and give us a short address. I'd like to um, just uh, read a very short uh, bio 
um, of Liz. Dr. Elizabeth Bolton, or Liz, is a research affiliate with the Climate Change and Insecurity Project, which is a collaboration between the University of Oxford and the British Army. Her doctoral research developed the idea that climate and environmental change constitutes a new form of threat, in fact, a hyper threat. She then applied modified military threat analysis and strategic planning tools to investigate options for a hyper response. This led to Plan E, the world's first climate and eco-centered security strategy, published by the US Marine Corps University Press in 2022. Prior to this, Liz was a logistics officer in the Australian Army. She did logistics and humanitarian work in Africa and later worked in climate policy and risk communication in local, state and federal government agencies. Liz is an aunt to seven nephews and nieces aged 13 to 18. Would, you, would everyone um, welcome Liz Bolton? I'm a bit of a shorty, so I might just put that down a little bit. Uh, thank you for the warm introduction. Uh, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge Kat McLeod, who isn't here today. She's unfortunately ill, but she was, um, I really appreciate the fact she had to convince me that aunts would be welcome here, and I, I really, really appreciate that she did that. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge that we're on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. So mothers, grandmothers, aunties, sisters, daughters and allies, you're out here on a chilly winter's day because of your love and rightful concern for children and the next gen generation's future. I wish to honour your concern by introducing you to a bold approach to the mess we find ourselves in. Plan E is a concept for an emergency response to the planetary crisis. E stands for Earth. It's just a coincidence that my name's Elizabeth. Uh, <laughs> um, Plan E can also be described, as, as actually the introduction said, as a, a climate and ecologically centred security strategy. That is, it prioritises foundational security, a habitable planet, adequate food, shelter, water, um, for all forms of planetary life. But first, let me reflect on where we're at at the moment. In the context of the extreme changes in the climate system that we've seen this year, for example, just this week, the shocking fires in Hawaii, Canada and Spain, it is surreal that no serious emergency response planning effort is occurring. No global emergency meetings are being called. There is not even any contingency planning for how to enact a climate emergency response. By way of comparison, you may recall in November last year, a stray missile landed in Poland. Immediately, a global emergency meeting was called involving G7 and NATO leaders. The issue dominated world headlines. There was a sense of alarm that World War III might start at any minute. Strangely, this crisis ended at the exact time that the COP27 climate negotiations, which were underway in Egypt at the exact same time, came to a close. Then it turned out that the missile was just an accidental stray and it was no big deal after all. But again, an opportunity we had for ambitious climate action escaped the world's attention and was trumped by so-called traditional security concerns. 
that incident is an example of how security narratives can be distorted and used to underplay the dangers of climate and environmental crisis. I know you'd all be well aware of the lies surrounding the Vietnam War and the mythical weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. I'm going to propose to you today that decade-long discussion that climate and environmental issues should not be considered in a security environment, they should not be securitised, that this would lead to some sort of draconian solution and should be avoided at all costs, has also been a sleight of hand, a cunning tactic and part of the smoke and mirrors of distorted threat narratives. It is complex, but I argue that this approach of never properly considering the climate and ecological crisis as the extraordinary threat to life that it's often described as, has meant that new forms of violence, destruction, harm and killing have escaped scrutiny and proper prioritisation. So we need a new approach that accounts for the new form of violence that we front in this, this century. So that's what Plan E aims to achieve. And it, there are two underpinning concepts that I'd like to explain to you. Um, the first one is that redefining violence. So as, as, as been said, propose that the interconnected um, climate and ecological crisis um, present a new sort of threat, which I call a hyper threat. And I propose that the hyper threat will be the dominant form of killing, destruction and harm facing our population, and especially the future generations over the 21st century. The hyper threat has warlike destructive capabilities that are so diffuse that it's hard to see the enormity of the destruction coherently, nor who's responsible for its hostile actions. This new type of threat defies our existing human thought and institutional constructs. The other key concept is entangled security. And this is the idea at the most basic level is that planetary, human and state security are now inherently interconnected and entangled, that it doesn't make sense to consider just military security without thinking of the other two. So now that we've got these two new concepts, this allows a new question to emerge. So how do we contain the hyper threat in the context of an entangled security environment? So we threw a whole lot of strategic planning and threat response methods to this question and the result was Plan E. So what does Plan E involve? So the first thing I want to highlight is that it is envisaged as a civilian-led civil mobilisation, which is different from militarisation. So I just want to highlight that it does not follow that treating the planetary crisis as a serious threat therefore leads to a military solution. We are creative beings, after all, we can um, choose how we respond. So that the aim, the mission of Plan E is simply to create a safe path to safe Earth. In practical terms, this means limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. And I know that a lot of people would laugh at that at this stage, but I think there is a duty to Pacific Islanders and so forth to keep that stretch target and at least aim as close to that as possible. Arresting the sixth extinction event and maximising safety for all forms of planetary life. So the overall approach does take that entangled security theory through the whole thing. It creates a high level framework to concurrently address planetary, human and state security dimensions. It raises a whole stack of new capabilities, new institutions and involves new jobs. Just for example, eco-transition coaches, transition teams, eco-rebuild squads and my favourite, tracking harm specialists. So they're a special new sort of detective, a white collar crime and environmental crime specialist. 
So the time frames, it goes for 80 years, but I just want to focus on the first two aspects. It begins with, which is actually called Plan E, a full year devoted to emergency action and envisaging and embarking. So it's a full year dedicated to planning, deliberate supported planning. So I just want to highlight that Plan E is a bottom-up approach to security and increasingly a localised response to threat. So that means we need a full year to support that bottom-up planning across the whole spectrum of society. So for mums, parents, caregivers, childcare workers, teachers and so on, we'll be involved in this deliberate planning. After a year of deliberate planning, and of course there are some emergency actions, we then go to Plan F. F stands for four years of fast and furious. So it is four years of going hell for leather from 2025 to 2028. So you can imagine it as like a backyard blitz, you know, and they do those rapid renovation programs on TV, but it's like that, for, but it's for the planet. So it's on a gigantic scale across every sector, every company, every school, every hairdresser shop, every bakery and every supermarket. So we have four years to establish a circular economy, four years for the housing and construction sector to only build eco-sensitive and zero carbon homes. Four years to get urban food forests up. Four years to prepare for the main body, the hyper-threatened main body forces who will start to arrive 2030 and for us to be ready to outsmart, outmanoeuvre and survive the coming hyper-threat attacks. Four years to rewrite laws and put in a new legal and justice framework. And four years transforming our educational institutions to develop the workforce skills, apprenticeships that the hyper-response will need. There's a couple of um, specific task forces that I want to explain to you that are relevant to, to mothers and caregivers. One is a thing called the Home Force. So this is one of the major focuses of Plan E, is the eco-transition at the household and community level. So to achieve that, I'm imagining a massive inundation of research and development support to the home and community sector for a major eco-transformation. So imagine the budget for a new Air Force strike fighter, fighter um, plane and the technical and specialist expertise that would be allocated to that. So now imagine that type of effort, the best designers, the best innovators are assigned to work with parents and communities to essentially design the hyper threat out of existence. There is another group which is called the Life Force Group and their mission is to enhance human vitality and well-being. There is a phrase that to win a battle you need the strongest army as possible. So the aim is to make the hyper-response force as strong and vital as we possibly can be. And we know that there's all sorts of problems across the community. So within that area of life force, there's a special area allocated to family and parenting and something called relations of care. So this is an approach that understands that the human being is not an autonomous single unit, nor is it a consumer or a GDP producer, but rather it's a person that exists and survives in networks of care and that all human beings need love, care, appreciation, acceptance and inclusion in order to thrive. So we take a blank, blank page approach to family, parenting and relations of care in the context of a, hype, a looming hyper threat. There are a whole lot of tailored human security solutions for vulnerable groups, groups such as domestic violence, human trafficking, homelessness, etc., sexual violence, gang street violence. So that injecting resources and expertise to reconsider what can be done in those areas 
and how those vulnerable people can, if they want to, be contributors and part of the hyper-response. The main thing is to set ourselves up to succeed. So at a strategic level, Plan E is intended as a starting point, a launch pad for idea creation by others. So rather than detail every exact solution, it creates a space, opportunity, the planning support and resources for others to develop fantastic, robust, imaginative solutions that suit their context. Plan E is about care ethics with muscle. We know we're going to face hell. So we look after each other as much as possible. We prepare as much as possible. We, we create buffers, redundancy, emergency stocks, emergency shelters, opportunities to rehearse specific emergency actions. We develop new forms of expertise. We take this threat very seriously. We give ourselves and the planet the best chance we can. I'd like to end by calling for two specific actions. First, the federal budget allocates funding for the development of a planetary crisis response plan. At the very least, a contingency plan for emergency response is developed. When you think of the defence budget, the fact that not one dollar is allocated to this is absolutely atrocious. Second, at the diplomatic level, Australia seeks to establish a planetary crisis peace treaty in our region, including with China. These two steps are the least that's owed to the next generation. Thank you. Isn't that amazing? Dr. Liz Bolton, she should be Prime Minister. That was incredible. Uh, Mothers for Climate Justice. It was uh, 19th of August outside the um, Arts um, Gallery uh, down on St Kilda Road. Uh, what a speech. What a mighty woman. Uh, just amazing. Wage theft is the symptom of the problem. What we're seeing is obscenely well-remunerated vice-chancellors. It's appalling how badly universities have been treating their casual workers. They want to pretend that they can continue on with business as usual. Well, comrades, we're here to say no. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. We're coming to the end of uh, Solidarity Breakfast for another Saturday, but uh, before we do, we can't uh, go without doffing our hat to the remarkable strikers at uh, Melbourne University. They've been out for uh, some, are still out for seven days. Uh, different parts of the university went out for different lengths of time. Uh, as uh, David Gonzalez, the president of the NTU branch, said in a rather sophisticated way that uh, each area was given a chance to th- consider how far they felt safe to go. Uh, before we leave t- this morning, uh, we'll hear one of the voices from the rally that they had on the Monday. Uh, this is Abigail. She's a casual academic at, at Melbourne University, and this is her view on why it was important to strike. My name is Abigail, and I've been a fixed-term tutor in the Faculty of Arts for about two years now. I'm also a PhD candidate, and I did my undergraduate degree here as well. I want to say something briefly about why I am striking this week and perhaps why some of you are striking too. To be a graduate researcher is to get pretty used to hearing that you have no future in, ac- in academia. For many of us, the future that isn't a future looks like vying for casual or fixed-term contracts, 
here and elsewhere, possibly working across multiple universities. Aside from offering no financial or emotional stability for us and our families, the workload allocation of these contracts will make it almost impossible for most people, especially those with the demographic indicators you might imagine, to do the research required to be competitive for the few ongoing jobs that do exist. Then again, given the trajectory of the higher education sector here in Australia and around the world, we might ask what it would even mean to say, I work at the university in 20 or 30 years time. Many of us continue with our work, knowing that there is no future, but wanting to stay as long as we can in spaces where we can read and write and think and teach. We continue with our work and try for a while to ignore the fact that this university is being run as a business, with little regard for any of those pursuits, that the essence of the thing that we're trying to hold on to has been hollowed out and set on fire. In some cases, we stick around long enough to see the people who may, whose presence made the decision to stay seem meaningful in the first place, burn out, be discarded, take jobs outside the sector, or lose the time and capacity to do the work that we need them to do. We all know that there are more PhD students than there are potential jobs in academia. That's not what I want to talk about today. Personally, my plan has always been to be a high school teacher, and other people I know have other plans. What concerns me is this. Most of the jobs that do exist in this sector are not good jobs or fair jobs, or jobs which are conducive to actual thinking, learning, or teaching, and we are expected not to care, to complain about things at the pub, perhaps, but not to change our workplace for the better. Um. If we stick around at all, it seems that we're supposed to do so quietly for as long as we are convenient, tutor for two or 10 or 20 years without sick leave or parental leave, attempt to publish quality research with no time allocated in our workloads to do so, and finally, in many cases, to disappear. In other words, it seems we're expected to accept things the way they are out of a sense of loyalty, perhaps, to the people who make decisions about where to put new buildings or how to appear to securitize our workforce without compromising their profits. Maybe they hope that everyone will blame their own personal inadequacy or turn on one another. But management have miscalculated. We can see that the system is broken and we do care. I come to the end of my seventh year at this university with a sense of loyalty not to the Chancellor, Vice-Chancellor or any of its senior executives or their consultants, but rather to the tutors, lecturers, supervisors, librarians, school operations coordinators and other professional staff members who I have known and whose labour has been inextricable from my learning, teaching and research. The majority of these people have been and continue to be systematically overworked and underpaid for the amount of work they do. The majority are insecurely employed and can't be sure they'll still have jobs at the end of this semester or in a year's time. Many of you are here today, as are many students, recognising the inextricability of your own positions from the working conditions at this university. I'm going on strike because regardless of whether I see a future working in higher education, I feel very strongly that I don't exist in a vacuum as much as certain powers would like me to believe that this is the case. The organising that has gone into getting us all here today on the first day of the longest strike on this campus since the stonemasons fought for the eight hour day <laughs> is a testament to the fact that we don't trust the senior management of this thing that we still call the university. We trust each other and we are strong together. 
We have organized from the ground up, locally and through hundreds if not thousands of one-on-one -on -one conversations, emails, phone calls, coffees and meetings. I have spoken with and organized with people who have been on casual contracts, contracts for decades in the same or similar roles and who have been unable to take out loans, plan their future or see beyond the months or even weeks ahead of them. I have spoken with and organized with people who had tens of thousands of dollars stolen from them at the time when they needed it most and only received some part of that money back as a result of the efforts of casual employees and union members at this university, whose work on the $45 million wage theft campaign has had ripple on effects across the country. I have... <laughs> I have spoken with and organised with people who feel that they can't be the teachers they want to be or do the work that is required of them because they can't concentrate or think or sleep at night under the various and intersecting pressures of their jobs. Pressures which have crept up over the course of decades and which so show no sign of naturally abating. As a friend of mine said recently, we can all predict the way things will pan out if we don't strike. In coming together today on the first day of this unprecedented week-long strike, a strike we can vote to extend for days or even weeks if we have to. We are introducing an element of uncertainty. Maybe for a little while we can stop things from getting worse. Thank you. Our next performer, Adelita, who is a modern rock icon. She has been uh, the front person for the amazing Australian band Magic Dirt, but she's also been a voice who's been no stranger at forest rallies, whether it be here in, Tas in Victoria or down in Tasmania. She's, she's got a, a passion for our forests. I'm sure you'll all make her feel very welcome here today. Thank you, Adelita. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Look at all you legends. Thanks for coming out, oh my God. So great to be here. I love nature, I don't want to see it logged or destroyed. So yeah, let's end native forest logging forever. Oh my God, go Shane Goen is here to help me out. All right, you might know this song, it's like a very famous song. So sing along if you know the words. We'll just make sure we've got some guitar coming through. Is the guitar coming through okay for everybody? Okay, here we go. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot With a pink hotel, a boutique and a swinging hot spot That you don't know what you got till it's gone. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. They took all the trees, put them in a tree museum. And they charged the people a dollar and a half just to see it. Don't it always seem to go? That you don't know what you got till it's gone. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. Hey, farmer, farmer, put away that DDT now. 
give me the spots on my apples Believe me, the birds and the bees Please, don't it always seem to go That you don't know what you got till it's gone They paid paradise, put up a parking lot Come on! Late last night, I heard the screen door slam And a big yellow taxi took away my old man Don't it always seem to go That you don't know what you got till it's gone They paid paradise, put up a parking lot I said, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone. Come on. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. Yeah, they paid paradise, put up a parking lot. I said, they paid paradise, put up a parking lot. 